There is a woman who haunts the imagination of men and women alike. She's too much. Too big, too hairy, too loud, too angry. Let's call her the feminist boogeyman. And as much as men in power have used this figure to keep women complacent and quiet, pointing out that no one would ever want to fuck this woman, let alone love her, feminists themselves use this specter to assure men they don't want too much, that they'll be good. Those women, the ones who went too far, women who called for the abolition of marriage, who wanted a total societal revolution, who didn't even use lipstick, for God's sake, they're crazy. But us, you can trust us, we want the same things you do. These are women like Andrea Dworkin, Shulamith Firestone, Diane de Prima, Valerie Solanas, women who are too inconvenient to incorporate into the feminist canon. Luckily, Brianne Foz shares my affection for these shunned women, for these Baba Yagas. Foz is the author of the only Solanus biography, as well as a collection of essays, Out for Blood, Essays on Menstruation and Resistance. We're speaking with Brianne Foz, the author of Out for Blood, a book about menstruation and feminism, and also the only biography of Valerie Solanus, um, which now that I think about it, is strange that she's such a neglected figure in this kind of official academic way. How did you, I guess just to start, how did you uh, decide to write about a polarizing figure like Solanus? Well, I mean, Valerie Solanus is one of those people that people tend to have very strong feelings about. And when I first read her manifesto, I found it so funny, but in a different kind of way than I would say, you know, typical humor. It felt funny in the sense that she was touching on things that were true that at least at that point in my life, I'd never heard anyone say. So then I became completely obsessed. This was back in college was figuring out who she was and what her backstory was. And I looked everywhere I could find things and really found very little. Um, so I think, you know, starting as a grad student, I thought that I really was being dedicated to um, wanting to write about her and figuring out how to find as much about her as possible. And then over the years, you know, I realized how much of a provocateur she really was, you know, related to, um, I don't know, just, just disrupting so many different, myths and feelings people have about feminism and, you know, being a sort of embodiment of things that people were afraid of about feminism. And that felt really exciting and provocative too. So I, I still continue to think that she's one of the more interesting characters in our, in our feminist history. Yes. And so her manifesto is called the scum manifesto, the society for cutting up men, which uh, is you know, the larger thing that I want to talk about, which is the feminist boogeyman uh, that's been sort of constructed within our culture, including by sort of more mainstream feminists themselves, which is this terror of the idea that feminists are somehow against men or anti-man. So for her to just sort of just put it in the title, <laughs> um, <laughs> she makes some people uncomfortable. Yeah, well, I mean, that also might have been a tactic by her publisher to sell more books. 
so there's there's lots of controversies about how much she did and didn't endorse that particular version of it. I think she, you know, in her writings meant meant it more as scum, as in who she called, you know, degenerates, whores, dykes, you know, people that she thought were sort of banding together in the gutter to kind of take back the world. So I like that interpretation a lot better than um, necessarily the sort of man-centric version, because I think she really, she has this interesting vision of women as these sort of prowling, self-interested, I don't know, it's hard to describe. I guess there's different versions of it I've seen, you know, in, in different TV shows lately. Like there's a little bit of what I would consider to be Valerie Solanus's some women in broad city and things like that. You know, you kind of, you kind of see traces of it, but you know, that was also threatening too. So it wasn't just this kind of um, anti-man or violent rhetoric. It was also the sense that women would prioritize each other over men um, in, in this sort of fanatic way and would violently, if necessarily um, violently reject daddy's girls, right? So that was also really threatening. And all of this kind of comprises this feminist boogeyman because it's not simply just, you know, someone who's behaving badly. It's also someone whose priorities are very different than the ways that women are sort of trained to think about their priorities. So, you know, it was not focused. She really wanted men to, she really wanted women to not be focused on men's approval. And I think that's a message now that just resonates so heavily. I mean, especially now that we have Trump as president, it feels like this feel this fear of not having men's approval still haunts us. And so, you know, that extends to the ways that we think about things like, you know, the scary feminist is really embedded into that belief system. And yet I do think that there is within the younger generation, at least, um, a growing interest in the more radical edge of feminism. I think for whatever reason, uh, ladies my age, uh, which is, you know, hovering around 40, strongly rejected at some point uh, the radical feminism and tried to dissociate themselves from it. And you see it in sort of mainstream feminist scapegoating figures like Solanus and Dworkin as being sociopaths or examples of when feminism went too far. But from what I've been hearing from younger women in their early 20s, mid-20s, is that this is the stuff that's really interesting to them. And I think uh, my generation sort of, you know, let them down uh, by not sort of continuing the, the thread of radical feminism or even just the scholarship of radical feminism. It seemed to have stopped somewhere around the riot girl movement. Yeah, I mean, there is some truth to that. I also, I've also found that my students typically, you know, who are typically in their 20s, but not always, um, if you present, you know, radical feminism as sort of just within the canon of feminism, there's a lot less resistance to it than you'd think. I mean, I, I find them to be remarkably capable and excited about engaging with ideas that are too far and not just engaging with the ideas, but truly engaging with the concept of too muchness and the over the topness and the things that scare us. I mean, those are, that's actually really useful, you know, in terms of learning about kind of the breadth of feminism. So I agree that, you know, students and women in their twenties seem to be um, increasingly interested in these things. However, I think, 
you know, we also, there's still like, the, I, I go back to that thing that, you know, so much of Valerie's work is obsessed with about getting approval, because I think that you're right in that we've also developed a version of feminism that is really eager to apologize for itself. And that extends, you know, not just into the popular versions of feminism, but also, um, you know, I see this even in, in like the national organizations that are dedicated to feminist, you know, in, interests and things like this, that they're really nervous about being associated with radical thinking, even though there is an interest in it. And especially now, you know, since Trump's presidency is, has seemed to rad, have radicalized more and more women, young and older, you know, that seems like it's just fitting right into this mode that we're recognizing that we need radical thinking and we need radical action too. So it's kind of an interesting time where I, I hope, I, I don't know if this is true because it's probably too early to tell, but I hope that feminism will do much less apologizing for itself and much more embracing of these sorts of ideas. And again, not necessarily even just the technical ideas of all of these, you know, and it, of course, Andrea Dworkin being a great figure too. I'm glad you brought her up because she's always the first to be sort of disclaimed as the too much as well. Um, but I think, you know, this is a time when ideas seem relevant, but also that women start to see these patterns, or at least I'm seeing that, at least among my students, things like that, these patterns of distancing from, you know, women's general tendencies when they become radicalized to be framed as, you know, too much and over the top and too emotional and all the things that get attached to women when they start to, you know, talk more radically or behave more radically. So I think it's exciting that we might have this kind of interesting fusion between people of our generation, right, who, again, like have the right girls as men and, you know, all this, and then um, younger generations of feminists who may have kind of distanced themselves initially and are now kind of saying, we want more of this. So it's good. Yeah, I'm interested in the idea of too far and too much. Um, so through your writing, I was reading about Cell 16, uh, which was kind of the beginning of the separatist movement. Um, and this idea of, I mean, it's Cell 16 was essentially, I mean, it's kind of a convent, but with Kung Fu, uh, this idea <laughs> of celibacy and, and being separate from men, but also teaching self-defense. I mean, I think, you know, somebody like St. Teresa uh, could actually kind of get get behind that idea. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they would hate being called a content, but I actually, I think it was really one of those things where they kept as a group experimenting with new things, you know, as a collective that seemed to make sense to them. Um, and I, I love that as, as an idea, as a premise for a radical feminist group, because, you know, it wasn't like all of those things were in some kind of doctrine or anything like that. They sort of, you know, as they sprang up one by one. So, you know, there's, you know, women were getting raped. And so they decided, okay, we want to, we want to escort women home from work in these neighborhoods where women are getting raped. And so that sort of started this public, you know, displays of solidarity thing that they were doing. And then um, one of them, you know, was really into self-defense and said that she thought this would be good for women to be able to turn their bodies into weapons and learn how to defend themselves. So then that became, this, you know, this other kind of wing of what they were up to and teaching and, you know, practicing. And then um, 
one of one of the members was really excited about the idea of celibacy and really thought that they kept hearing in different feminist circles, well, you can't not have sex though. And this is a thing that, you know, even among more radical feminists were being was just being said as true that you weren't allowed to give up sex or giving up sex was a problem and you had to keep men around because you had to have sex. So, you know, that came up in response to that sort of saying, well, let's experiment with what happens if we make a claim that you actually don't have to have sex and that you have a freedom from having to have sex if that's what you choose. So it was kind of a, an interesting organic group in that way. They, you know, and they ended up, of course, with this kind of wild profile of, you know, doing um, self, practicing self-defense, you know, frequently espousing separatists or at least views that embrace celibacy, especially, you know, for periods of time of women's choosing, you know, banding together to go out in public and, you know, escorting women home and doing a lot of work with women of color. I mean, it was, it was this really interesting group, I think, that, you know, is way too often forgotten and definitely had, you know, within its framework, a sense of being militant. And I love that too. You know, we, we've kind of lost that too, this, this sense of women embracing what that word meant in the 60s sense of um, being a militant radical feminist was really, you know, they, they too wanted to be scary. They wanted to be menacing or threatening or feel like they were disrupting something. That was really a part of who they were as a group. And I think that's, that's really interesting in the sense of, you know, what your work thinking about in terms of always feminism, always wanting to distance now from that, uh, at least mainstream feminism, certainly. And, and I agree that I think somehow we've lost like this, this identity as a, a kind of militant radical feminist that I think it was people like cell 16 really embraced at the time. So, yeah. I think that some of the, the not whitewashing exactly, but this need for um, feminism to close itself off from the radical edge. Uh, and this is you know something I wrote about in the, in the manifesto was this idea that assimilation became easier and, and uh, certainly women are allowed now to, make money and to be kind of um, monstrous in the male sense of the, you know, capitalist and the patriarch and that sort of thing, rather than monstrous in the sense of um, Dworkin and Solanus. Um, but do you see a shift in the scholarship happening? I mean, when I'm looking at your uh, new book, Firebrand Feminist, um, most of those women that you're writing about are not they're hard to find anything on, uh, you know, Wikipedia or anything sort of um, more in depth than that. So, but do you see a shift happening with that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you're right. And I'll go back to what you said in the beginning too. I think you're right that radical feminism in the sixties was staunchly anti-capitalist. So there was never a rhetoric that I've ever come across anyway of women thinking of themselves as a brand, marketing themselves as individuals, even really thinking along individualistic lines. There was, you know, a real, I would say, nearly fanatic emphasis on the collective among radical feminist groups, which, which led to various raptures. Certainly, it's not like this was always harmonious. But this whole thing that's happened now where feminism has been interpreted as a very individualistic enterprise where we take the lessons of these collective movements and we apply them to our own personal um, 
cell for gain, you know, the gains we made by having by crafting a particular cell for whatever it is that people are doing nowadays. That seems really foreign. So I, I think you know this, this distance between the collective and the individual is definitely there. And also, you know, they were really against any of this kind of super mainstreaming of women's power. I mean, even really, seriously, even way back to the very, very beginning of the earliest radical feminist writings and, and speeches and things like this, they were sort of saying it is absolutely insufficient to think about only putting certain women in positions of power and then calling that a feminist gain, because of course, that will only benefit the elites. And they, of course, that also meant the white elites, but they were really, you know, against this idea of improving the lives of elite women. That was not what radical feminism was about. So they wanted to really think, you know, what would be, what is going to benefit the most number of women and especially women who are, you know, living in poverty or indigenous women or women who are sort of neglect, especially neglected. So, you know, that's a big, that's a big sort of shift as well. Um, I love this, this phrase, use the monstrous male. Yeah, you're right. Like the monstrous female is really absent, you know, that, I'm not sure we know what she is, except that we bump up against her when we're accused of being that thing and then feel horrified. I mean, that's kind of what we what we have as a framework for thinking about the monstrous, the monstrous, scary female. Um, but I'm always, you know, one thing that that always strikes me, I'd be curious what you think about this, is the ways that women um, think that they'll be able to skirt her all along, you know, that they'll be able to not be accused of being again too much or crazy or over the top or scary or you know all the things that people I guess fear being accused of those those will be things that follow us so I always think it must be more interesting to sort of embrace those things and try to work with it on those terms rather than trying to avoid them or skirt them you know I, I've been really interested not in even in the field of women's studies so you know I want women's studies to think of itself as more radical you know that's really important to me and one of the big barriers to that is that you know it's it's within an institution of course and so it has to come across as as least threatening or at least as least scary as possible um especially in its sort of marketing techniques and in the professional organizations and things and that seems like a real tragedy in some ways because you know these these stories follow us regardless of whether we try to distance ourselves from them yeah i was thinking about um the Dubrovka Ugrasich novel, uh, Baba Yaga Laid an Egg, because uh, Dworkin seems like this kind of um, big Baba Yaga figure of not just the scary crone, <laughs> um, but this person who kind of drags you into uh, into the woods, into the darkness, and and makes you find your way back in this way. And I think that we're scared of that. We're scared of going to these extremes in our culture because what if what if nobody wants to fuck us anymore? Um, what if nobody wants to pay us anymore? Like everything seems so precarious. So everyone's on their best behavior all of the time. Um, yeah. But it seems like this denial of the extremes of feminism has gone to this really demented place where I can't tell the difference between a sort of um, very pretty woman calling herself a feminist and talking about how Wonder Woman 
uh, is the pinnacle of feminist achievement. Um, and, and some bro on Twitter talking about, um, you know, um, or doing, you know, a series of podcasts, right. the bro podcast. Um, anyway, so, um, so yeah, to me, it's, it, these are figures that we have to deal with at some point, or they are, um, they become these kind of devouring creatures in the mythological sense. Yeah, I think you're right, because the myths can be more dangerous, I think, than the complex human really is. And I mean, the point I think that we have to really deal with sooner than later is that people like Andrea Dworkin and Valerie Solanas were very difficult, sometimes impossibly difficult people. They were full of contradictions. Sometimes they acted terribly. Sometimes they were brilliant. Some, you know, I think the more that we we place them in this category of um, mythical figure, the more that we lose that really interesting texture of all of their humanness, right? The ways in which they were also very heartbreaking, I think, both of them in different ways um, when we think about more about their humanness. So they had these really, really radical writings that, you know, when we when we compare that with an interesting biography or the story of their humanness, it, it reduces the potential for mismaking. I mean, one of the things I couldn't get over when I was writing the biography of Valerie Solanus is just how little, how few people had actually tried to look into, you know, let's say some original details of her life. It was almost like, especially among academics, people were very eager to just take the myths that we have about Valerie Solanus and just use those to insert into their own kind of academic discourses. And I get that, you know, we do that a lot with different figures, but it seems so painful to see that happening over and over and over about her, you know, about Valerie in particular, just because her life itself really was so interesting. And the people who knew her said such bizarre and contradicting things about her that, you know, the more that I worked on this book, the more I realized we, we owe it to not just these women, but to the story of feminism to make sure that we are remembering that these are humans and that they are incredibly complex humans with, you know, who we have, we really shouldn't try to distance from their difficulty at all because they were, they were just very difficult women. And, you know, maybe we should all aspire to be our own version of that. Um, I really liked what I was uh, getting when I was preparing for this interview. Um, is it T Grace Atkinson? Um, right. Yeah. Uh, the line, the vaginal orgasm is a mass hysterical survival response. Which <laughs> That's one of her famous before. ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, I came across that just as I was leaving the house today. So it was the top, top of my notes. Um, so as far as when it comes to dealing with these women as, as a scholar and as somebody trying to bring this back into, uh, you know, from the unconscious into the conscious. Um, you know, I feel like how we tell history is, tends to be very sort of self-serving. It's particularly um, feminist history. So we remember these sort of very bland mainstream figures, um, and then we distance ourselves from the more extreme figures. I think even going all the way back to first wave, and I, because I think of somebody like, you know, for whatever reason, Susan B. Anthony is the prominent figure there rather than who was, you know, <laughs> was kind of a racist, um, was pro-life and all these other sorts of things. Um, rather than Victoria Woodhull, who was her peer and who was an abolitionist, 
and a sex worker and came from poverty. You know, it seems like mm -hmm. we are very self-serving in who we choose to remember even as being a kind of um, a remarkable feminist or a feminist uh, role model, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, there's a million reasons for that, but not the least of which is that women's historians are often disregarded. Um, so, you know, that's like a terrible starting premise where even the making of history gets sort of determined in these other ways because women's historians are often, you know, treated as, in, you know, insignificant or not as prestigious in various ways. So, you know, there's so, there's just so many reasons for that too, but it also seems like we want stories that fit into more of our notion of hero, you know, sort of like a hero story or um, the stories that make us feel like those loose ends are kind of tidied. I mean, I think that's why it's really tricky doing a history of radical feminism at all, because I also really don't want to highlight all of the ways in which the women were constantly disagreeing with each other. You could easily write many volumes on that. Um, because it's real, and that's, you know, of course there, there are definitely useful and provocative ways in which those massive ideological disagreements were huge, you know, foundational points of radical feminism, but it also seems like, you know, there was, there was such interesting, diverse overlaps between lots of different women. For example, on the issue of abortion, when it first, abortion organizing first started, you know, you had women from every imaginable walk of life coming together saying that they had had enough. I mean, that seems like a terribly interesting story to me in some ways of, you know, who and why and how the, this particular issue came to prominence, you know, right at this particular moment in 1967, 68, right? And, and that there was such a, a just an astonishingly diverse group of women working on abortion rights. And so you think about, you know, how the story of abortion rights kind of you know, that's a really big story for feminists, of course, feminists of all stripes, really. And we know very little about its origin points, right? So if you talk to women about, you know, their views about pro-choice and pro-life and things like that, you know, even the idea that those are our options mm -hmm. seems kind of false. You know, I mean, there is some extremely interesting kind of radical abortion rights stuff going on. You know, there's a lot of disagreement about the premise of right to privacy. And of course, people have written about this, but we lose all of this stuff when we want this very tidy story of there are two camps on abortion and they think these things, which is just like, you know, it, it completely erases, I think, the radical history of abortion, which is that right to privacy was more of like a compromised position that many radical feminists still feel haunted by, that they got it wrong, that they had warned their, you know, their fellow organizers, like, we do not think this is a good basis for abortion rights activism. We think you know, abortion rights have to be fundamentally about women having, you know, true rights to their own bodies and children and things like this from the very, very beginning point. You know, so it, it was just, it's one of those things, again, where you see this funny collusion between um, the impulse towards a tidier story, the impulse towards caricatures of the right and the left as this one particular thing. And when we have caricatures of the right and the left, we erase the radical. Of the of the left in particular, um, the far right, of course, is gaining in its power in part, you know, thanks to our current political situation. But the radical left gets really left out of that. You know, it got left out during even you know the kind of arguments about gay marriage and things like this. 
you know, we just lose it. We lose a lot of those details of what the radical arguments are. So that, that collusion, I think, between oh, the erasure of certain kinds of history and why that happened um, and the desire between to have these sort of tidy stories, I think, can be really dangerous, as you say, even for first wave, you know, historians of the first wave, because you're absolutely right that certain figures kind of rise to the top of the pile. I mean, and, you know, all, obviously there's also the element that certain people are just really savvy at dealing with the media. And so they tend to rise to the top of, of you know, prominence. You know, people like Gloria Steinem, she was just really excellent at knowing how to kind of wrangle the media and how to deal with it. You know, and I wouldn't say that that was true for a lot of other feminists who were active in the late 60s, early 70s. They, a lot of a lot of women active in that period just really didn't feel equipped to deal with the media in a savvy way or really know what to do with the media. And Gloria Steinem did. And, you know, now we sort of see her also as, as like the representation of second wave feminism. And I'm not sure that's a very fair representation either. You know? no. <laughs> um, talking about the abortion rights argument, it does amaze me how many uh, feminists have no idea of things like the Jane Collective that was, you know, yeah. while abortion was illegal, providing abortions, women were uh, essentially learning how to give abortions and they created networks. And in some ways that that past was erased because of this argument of, um, you know, if abortion is made illegal, uh, it's just going to be coat hangers and back alleys for everybody. Um, and yes, women died, but at the same time, women taught themselves how to do this stuff themselves um, and for each other. And I think that that positioning ourselves as somehow um, the victim of society, rather than acknowledging that for a lot of this, for a lot of our history, under the patriarchy, under capitalism, et cetera, all these other sort of um, almost nonsensical big, big words. Um, women figured out how to take care of each other and women figured out how to survive marginalization and oppression. And since we are still all marginalized and oppressed in, well, most of us, in a lot of ways, um, why aren't we sort of retelling these stories so that uh, we realize how many options we actually have? Yeah, you know, I love that too. There, were, there was so much of an emphasis on that in the second wave about even like menstrual extraction. You know, people, women were, as, as a part of, you know, women teaching themselves how to perform, you know, self-induced abortions. They also, you know, were doing all these funny things like let's remove all of our menstrual blood so we don't, bleed this month like in one swoop you know these funny <laughs> things where now that's that seems a little absurd to us and maybe it is but you're right that there is a kind of lovely tension between women recognizing their own victimization let's say or whatever word we want to use you know lack of power oppression etc but also having this sort of relentless sense of fighting back and I always find I mean that to me is maybe the the core of not only Valerie's story but all of the other radical feminists that I've written about, is that there's something sort of truly and deeply moving about that to me that I, I'm always amazed by, like, you know, it truly makes me feel this kind of, I don't know, I always have this affective response, you know, after I leave speaking with them or talking to them that seems, you know, unusually strong, you know, and I think that's what, that's why is that 
there's something really lovely about um, the sense that you know, you just like don't take any shit. And of course they do have to take shit as we all do, but they don't, it's like, they just don't allow room for the idea that that's just a part of what it means to be a woman that, you know, for example, like Tigrate recently in the last several years um, was facing eviction because her building was being sold. And so they were trying to evict all of the people in her building who are, you know, young and old alike. And she organized all of them together you know, and did her classic stuff, right? So she just went right back into the action in her 70s to organize her building, you know, to make threatening phone calls and letters, to, you know, figure out what needed to be done in terms of the city council. Like, just did everything that needed to be done. And when they interviewed her for this local newspaper, she just straight up said, they messed with the wrong bitch. And I just, like, love <laughs> that. Like, that to me is what is, like, what we need, right? Is this thing of just, like, we are not here to take shit. But that doesn't mean you always win. In this case, she did, of course. But it doesn't mean that you do. But it it definitely means that there's this sort of tension between, um, like I don't I don't just like a posture of that's not we're like we're, we don't just say this is what this is our lot in life or something, you know. And that's that's a real lesson I think from the radical feminist too is like this kind of I don't know the fight the fighting back is like a a, ne- a necessity, you know. We have to. And I, I hate that I'm asking this question because I've been asked it a lot and, I, and I've always cringed, but I'm genuinely interested in your response. Um, what did you think of the Women's March? Oh, I loved it. I, I went to the Los Angeles one and I went with my partner and my mother and some friends and it was just, I don't know, I, I've been to a lot of protests and usually they, they're always their own thing. You know, so some of them, feel like really coherent some of them don't some of them feel you know they're smaller or bigger or whatever and this one I I guess what I felt so excited about with the women's march was the wonderful fusion of so many issues that people felt like they could express rage about together you know without necessarily all of those issues needing to be completely coherent that felt like a like a really good step in the right direction to me where you know you have people who are tapping into like their feelings of rage and then figuring out which things they want to kind of put, you know, most prominently on their signs or, or in different smaller collectives there. So I guess it just felt, it felt really radical to me. And in, in the sense of, you know, especially all of these women of different ages, just freely expressing anger, which I think in other protests, because mostly other protests have been, you know, like the Occupy protests are really, a little bit more narrow in their focus, let's say, or, you know, various abortion protests I've been to have been a little bit more narrow. This one just felt like, like everyone could, could really tap into something that they were feeling in that moment. And that rage was totally okay. It was suddenly acceptable to be on the menu. So then the Los Angeles one was just, was just amazing and overwhelming. (laughs) You know, there were, I don't know how many people, but some just remarkably huge number of people. And, all the way from, you know, the, the far out, um, you know, like public transit stations all the way into downtown. It just felt like a, a funny mix between a party and a rage fest. And it was, I loved it. I mean, I have, I really, I felt like um, I just want nothing. I don't want to hear nothing about like critiques of it for some reason. I just feel allergic to that because I kind of just, you know, I found it to be like such a great 
experience for me. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm unique in that, but I really loved it. I loved it so much. I can't even tell you. And to uh, shift gears a little bit, um, what made you write a collection of essays about menstruation? Uh, well, I, you know, I love thinking about bodies and the ways that bodies become this very concrete uh, site of, of all the things that we like to talk about, I think, in general. So for, whether that's power or oppression or resistance, um, etc. And so I've been writing about lots of different aspects of bodies for several years. And I find that especially when we write about bodies that are marked as abject or gross or disgusting or bring up that kind of, again, those, those sorts of aspects, like you get really interesting uh, responses and you can think differently about um, like things like power just become so vivid in ways that other things about other topics, you have to sort of work really, really hard to get at those aspects of, you know, how do we, how do we see the workings of power? The body just shows us that immediately, especially in terms of, you know, the more abject sites or disgusting or gross or rejected sort of sites of the body. So, you know, I had been working on body hair for many years and had had some pretty wild experiences writing about um, some different pedagogical assignments that I had had on body hair. And then I decided to transition over to start thinking also about menstruation, just because it also seemed like this site of um, just highly gendered, but also really important in the sense of an experience that is supposedly, you know, a very collective experience, but that has all of these different threads that kind of spiral out in different directions. So I don't know, I, I really enjoyed just writing that collection. And I still, like I said, am active with this group of feminists who think about menstruation that I just adore. And so, you know, partly also, you know, they're always keeping me thinking about blood and its meaning and, you know, things like that too. So, yeah. No, I like it because the, uh, that seems to be the, the stereotypes of, of the sort of too, too much feminist are body hair and, uh, you know, menstruation, um, that we're just, I don't know, like making arts and crafts with our blood all of the time or something, um, <laughs> which <laughs> why not? Um, you know, uh, the, the thing that I kept thinking about was, um, I was reading this old sort of seventies, uh, herbalist, you know, how to make your own herb garden and stuff like that. And the, the, uh, the advice for roses in order to make rose hips was put your, put your used tampons in your watering can, uh, because roses really like blood. And I'd never, uh, read that before anywhere. And yet it's true. They did really well. <laughs> they really enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are, I think they love to make fun of that version of feminism. That's like, you know, doing various rituals with menstrual blood or, but, but I actually think that there's something much deeper in those moments where we make fun of that, that, that is worth looking at, you know, I mean, I, it's, again, it's always, well, not always, but it's usually brought up in the context of I'm a feminist, but I'm, but I don't do this weird thing, right. Whether that's have armpit hair, you know, like again, burn my menstrual blood and witchy rituals or something, you know, and so they bring menstrual blood is really one of the things that gets brought up a lot as, a, as another feminist disclaimer, um, which I th I do find that like really kind of, kind of interesting, you know, I mean, in the sense of that, I don't know, the body, the women's bodies that are doing things that, 
you know, at least in the traditional sense have been constructed as gross. That seems like an enormously interesting site of, of where we want to kind of direct our attention. You know, like why, what kind of world do we really want in terms of, you know, especially young girls, right? They get these, these rhetorics like show up so early, you know, and, and by the way, now we also have menstrual education taught by Procter and Gamble, which I think is another kind of serious disaster on our hands, you know, where the corporate takeover of things like, of, you know, sex ed. I mean, this is kind of scary. Early health curriculum now being taught by truly by a corporation. And in part, I think it's because the schools were happy to outsource it to them. You know, they Procter and Gamble came in and said, we'll teach your whole curriculum. We'll hand out product samples and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to buy any books on, you know, and girls health anymore. And the schools are happy to do it because they don't want to talk about these things, or at least as a collective, the people who make those decisions aren't eager to actually, you know, put a lot of time and money and energy into that. So, you know, now we have truly, we have, you know, 10, 11 year old girls being taught about their menstrual cycles by Procter and Gamble. And I, I think we should really think about what that means. You know, I have hope uh, for the future because it seems like the, um, this constant convergence, well, not constant because it sort of ebbs and flows, but this convergence between the occult and feminism seems to be coming back. You know, the first wave was very into spiritualism. Second wave was just like, yeah, we have a coven. Um, and now the third wave, or whatever <laughs> this wave is, um, is millennials doing witchcraft, um, which I'm pretty excited about, to be honest. I mean, I hope they do something other than bind Donald Trump, but um, I'm, I'm into it nonetheless. I think... Yeah, you know, one of, one of my favorite... Uh posters of the women's march was pussy has or karma has a pussy which i thought was really like you know kind of in that vein too you know there is something about the collective energy of women you know even even however fraught with difficulties is pretty pretty intense right now so we'll see (laughs) okay thank you so much for speaking with me today about all of these Thank you. It's very early in the morning so to be much. doing it, but you know, here we are. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And thank you for your awesome manifesto. It's been such a joy to read. Oh, thanks. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm. For more podcasts, please visit foreverdogproductions.com.